following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are in a series going through our church's statement of faith, and today we're going to talk about what our statement of faith has to say about sin and salvation. So I'm just going to read what our statement of faith says, and then the rest of the sermon will be unpacking that. We believe that we sin when we disobey the commands of God's inspired word and reject his authority. All of us have sinned and are therefore in our natural state, lost and separated from God. We believe men and women were created in the image of God. However, by a voluntary act of the will, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. As a result, mankind began to die spiritually. Sin separated humankind from God and left us in a fallen or sinful condition. We believe that God the Father showed his love for all people by sending his son to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. We believe Jesus' death paid the penalty our sins warranted, and his resurrection grants us the life we could not attain, both of these being necessary to reconcile us to right standing before God. It is not through our efforts that we do this. When we admit our sin, confess that Jesus is Lord, and repent, we become a new creation and are gradually transformed into the image of Christ. So here's the story that the Bible tells. Part one, God makes the world and he makes the world good. In Hebrew, there's this word, taub, I hope I'm saying it right. It's when you read King James, for example, and God saw that it was good, that's what it means. And the good means every sense that you can think of something being good. It's not a real specific definition. It just means it's really awesome. What about that? Yep, that's awesome too. But what about that? Uh-huh. Like over and over, just the broadest sense that you can possibly think of for something being good. And the other creation stories that were in the ancient Near East at the time, the world, the cosmos, things that we live in, they were birthed out of violence. There was almost always this incredible clashing in this war, but you don't see that in Genesis. God looks out over uh, Genesis 1-1, God creates the heaven and the earth. It's formless and void. There's not a big fight. God just goes, okay, let's bring life where there was death. So this is a world that the Hebrews describe as being full of shalom. And that's, it means peace. We've talked about it before. It's peace, once again, in a very broad sense. If good was good in every possible way, this peace pretty much covers everything you can think of. It's peace with God. It's peace with others. It's an internal kind of peace. And it also means we're at peace with God's creation, which just simply means we're stewarding the earth well. So you'll see this throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's harmony, it's interconnectedness, it's fullness of life. This is what we start with. And then there's a problem. So Adam and Eve are given a choice, and they get to choose whether to be obedient to God and live within his design, or they could choose their own way. And in Genesis, we see this represented as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you know the story, you know they choose their own way, and the world begins to break apart. There's this scene in Genesis after Adam and Eve's sin, and God says to them, um, what, what have you done? And depending on your translation, you'll read this differently, because it could sound like God was kind of out of the loop and a little bit confused, like, I don't understand. 
That's not what God's saying. Probably a better translation is, why have you crafted this? So what have you done isn't a question of fill me in on the details. It's like when you walk into a bedroom and your kid has taken a marker and marked all over the wall and you go, what have you done? You're not confused. (laughs) You're wanting to clarify to your kid, do you realize your wall was clean, now it's not. And when Jesus talks to Adam and Eve, basically he says to them, why have you crafted or made this? Like, I made this good and full of shalom, but you decided to make this. And so sin entered the world at death by sin. So now the harmony, the wholeness, the goodness, this all becomes fractured. So we see very quickly violence instead of gentleness, deception instead of truth, and rebellion instead of obedience. And as Genesis unfolds, we see a version of this escalated quickly. Cain kills Abel. Within practically a couple verses, you see this other guy bragging, yeah, Cain killed Abel, but do you know how many people I've killed? And you just get this throughout the Old Testament. By the time the flood comes around, the world is full of violence. Even after the flood, it doesn't take long before people are building a tower to God, but it's to make a name for themselves. And this... This pattern in humanity just keeps coming out. Every time God gives people something good, they break it. And Paul would eventually write to the church in Rome that all of creation groans as it waits for redemption. He says, we're in bondage to decay and we're subject to futility. A British colonist named Bernard Levin wrote this a number of years ago. Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, together with such non-material blessings as a happy family, and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside them, and that however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it aches. Uh, Have you seen the So There's Your Problem memes? I'm thoroughly entertained by them. Um, I could have just used one to make my point, but I like all three of those a lot. The idea is that there's someone in a scenario, and they apparently can't figure out what's wrong, and it ought to be obvious because there's a very clear thing that's the problem. I think this is actually, well, I'm going to try to tie this now into the sermon so this wasn't just an excuse for me to show, there's your problem, memes. I think that's often the case when we look at our life. As this journalist had said, we stuff our lives with all these things and we wonder why the ache doesn't go away, why the hole doesn't get filled. So let's just address, there's your problem, and that's sin. At the heart of all of that aching and that emptiness and that brokenness and that longing, sin is the problem. And it's deeply embedded in us from the moment we're born. I mean, for all our criticism, if we were in Adam and Eve's shoes, we would have done the same thing. So Adam and Eve are referred to as archetypes. It simply means they're real people, but they're representative of something that's true about all of us. So their story would have been our story. Think of it now as... When we're born, our default mode is set to sin. It's part of the programming of the world. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
Death has passed to all people, for all have sinned. Apart from God, we're enslaved to sin. The wages of sin is death. We have bodies in need of deliverance. If you want to read more, just read the book of Romans, and it will tell you very clearly, there's your problem. The things we experience as individual kinds of problems, they all come back to the same source, the brokenness that sin brings to the world. It's probably worth noting, the Bible doesn't use the word sin in its original language. It comes from an old English word. That comes from German and Latin words and all kinds of stuff. The old English word, this may surprise you, is pronounced sin. But if you read the Bible in its original language, you won't read that word. You're going to read something different. Uh, I've heard it said that places like Norway, Sweden, and Finland have 300 different words for snow. I don't know if that's true or not, but for my purposes this morning, we're going to run with it. The idea of all these 300 words for snow is that they get so much snow that just to go, hey, it's snowing doesn't really work. I mean, we get it a little bit here in northern Michigan. There's a difference between lake effect snow and system snow, isn't there? Lake effect snow, I don't mind shoveling. System snow, Vincent's got to be out there doing the work, and I'm just <laughs> supervising. And so, uh, apparently, if you live in Finland, you get lots of different words for snow because there's lots of different snow. So, when we get to the Bible, it turns out there's lots of different words for sin. And I want to I go through them because there's actually a point to be made with these different representations. The first is hamartia. It simply means to miss the mark. When we read, we all fall short of or miss the glory of God, that's the word. It's the image of shooting at a target and you don't hit the bullseye. Another, I'm not going to try to pronounce all of these for what it's worth. The second word has to do with just a trespass or a blunder. It wasn't something that someone did out of like evil intent in their heart, but they still did something wrong. The third one is where you're crossing a line. If you think of an athletic field, you've gone out of bounds. Sometimes it might be accidental. Sometimes you might be trying to cheat and get away with it. The next one has to do with willfully going against what you know is right. I mean, sometimes it can mean accidentally, but there's a bit of a turn here now. The first couple words were describing clear mistakes and clear things out of God's design, but in, in some ways it's a recognition that we're fallen, broken people and we're not going to do things perfectly. But this one begins to move us toward, ah, but there's willful things we do too. The next one describes us as rebels breaking established rules. Uh, this next one, Avon, which some of your translations will say is Amway. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm glad I didn't have to explain that one. Um, has to do with willful or continuing sin. The next one has to do with injustice, action that causes visible harm to someone else. And the last one, the worst was just lawlessness, just chaos. So I'm trying to envision a soundtrack to this list of words. The beginning, the music is kind of light. I mean, not happy, but okay, we're, we're making mistakes. It's outside of God's design. Um, it's a serious thing, but it's part of the blundering of our life that's fallen us. And as you go down the list, the music gets darker and darker till at the end, lawlessness. It's just jazz. And <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, I got to refocus. 
The, the reason I want to point out that list is this. There's a verse in Scripture that says, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. And the verse means whoever commits hamartia, the very first one, you're actually trying to do good and you miss the mark. Whoever commits hamartia commits lawlessness, the last one on the list. And sin is lawlessness. So even, so the, even though the Bible uses different words to describe sin, and I think it's the biblical recognition that sometimes we sin in a sense accidentally, sometimes we sin very purposefully, but at the end of the day, all of it contributes to the chaos and the brokenness of the world. All of sin is lawlessness. So why is this sin so pervasive? I think it's because, let's go back to Adam and Eve, we want to rule ourselves. We want to do life on our own terms. In the garden, God gives Adam and Eve this good world in every possible sense and says, listen, this whole thing is yours except this one thing, just not this thing. You even get the tree of life. Eat from that, just, just not this and Adam and Eve are not content to do it on God's terms. They need to do it on their terms. They want to decide what's right and wrong. And I would phrase it this way. We want to worship and obey a God of our choosing. So the problem is that if we don't live for God, we'll live for something else. We all live for something. We will all worship something. And we'll order our lives around this thing that takes God's place. And usually we do that because we believe it's going to bring us some kind of happiness, some kind of fulfillment. It's going to add value to our life in some way that apparently God can't. So we're replacing God with something else. If you look on the screen, I just I have a list of things. This list could be many more things. But I'm trying to give a number of options of the kind of things where we look at it and we go, I want to be in charge of my life in this area. I mean... God might say that, but did God really say that? The oldest question in the Bible, did God really say that? And it could have to do with sex and jobs and money and family and all kinds of things. Now, you might have some questions as you look at this list because some of those things just seem to be very different than others. In fact, if you're like me, you're going to want to form a hierarchy of which things are really bad. So... Uh, I'd say someone who lives to be really smart is clearly some, is better than someone who lives to be really greedy. I'd say a self-controlled person is clearly better than someone who lives for their own personal comfort or just pursues pleasure. So if you're like me, I like to think we're all kind of similar. We look at this list and it's easy to find certain things and go, oh, those are clearly greater or lesser. Uh, I wish people would pay more attention to this list because I'm thinking of people right now in the congregation who are clearly on this list and have some sin issues that they need to address. But I, I want to try to talk you out of that position. Here's why all sin is lawlessness. And so keep in mind, hamartia, that very first one, is us shooting for something good and missing it, which is why on that list, there are good things on that list, but I want to talk about how they become lawlessness. So number one, when we begin to look at things other than God, I like the phrase, we begin to lean on these things to bring us things like peace or hope or even value. And I mean that very literally. If I'm getting tired, I can lean on this table. When I get tired of life, what do I lean on? What gets my weight? 
What do I assume will support me in the midst of whatever I'm facing? So we lean on these things. And then instead of ordering our lives around God, we're ordering our lives around these things. If we're going to lean on them and give them the weight of our troubles, they're going to have to be strong enough, so we're going to have to order our lives to make them strong. We've got to make them important and relevant. And then we start to think, this is the thing that will bring shalom back to me. This is the thing that will make the world good. So the more there is of this thing, the better the world must be. So we lean on it. That's the first thing. The second thing is we begin to build our identity on these things. So now we stop turning to Jesus to find the foundation of our value, of our worth, of our dignity, of the meaningfulness of our lives. Even though we're image bearers of God, we start to look to these things. And in fact, we begin to identify ourselves by these things. There's a verse I believe in Psalms that talks about we'll begin to look like the idols we worship. Mm -hmm. So if we have something else we're leaning on, we'll begin to depend on it, we begin to build it, and we begin to establish our identity on it, we're going to begin to look like that thing instead of Jesus. So let me give you a couple examples. If we feel like being a good parent is the thing that gives our life value and meaning and gives us worth in the eyes of other people and makes us just people of, who are good, um, then I'm going to think being a good parent is what gives my life value, gives my life meaning. Maybe I think success. Therefore, if I'm successful, I'm an important person. And now I have value and meaning. Or maybe it's attraction. If I'm a desirable person, my life has value and I have meaning. Maybe it's control. If I'm a capable person, then my life has value and my life has meaning. And without actually saying it, what we're doing is saying, we think all these things are going to fix this creation that groans. It's going to fill that ache inside of our hearts. This is the thing that will return goodness to the world and will give shalom to us. So we'll put a lot of pressure on these things. And then that leads us to being enslaved by them. And I would argue when we become enslaved by something like that, we begin to enslave those around us. And here's how it works. We become zealots for our own cause. If we really believe this thing is the thing that will fix the world, then we're probably going to assume that ought to be true for everybody else. So let me give you the four examples again. Uh, if we give our value to parenting, we're going to overparent. We're going to smother our kids. And they just can't bear the weight of our self-worth, parents. And then we're going to judge those around us whose kids aren't as outwardly put together because if our life has value and meaning because we're good parents, whatever that means, we're going to look around and see other people who are bad parents, whatever that means, and we're going to assume something is desperately wrong in them and something is really, really right in me. And so we don't just judge our own worth on this. We judge the worth of others on this standard as well. If we spend inordinate amounts of time making money or studying to be successful, well, then anyone who gets in our way pays the price. We look down on those who aren't as focused or as driven or as successful as we are because I assume then that they're lazy and I assume that their life doesn't have worth. 
Like they are not contributing like I am. Do they understand if they were just more focused in life, this would fix the problems of the world? Or if it's attraction and desirability, we'll pursue as many partners as we can. Because the, the message from one person that they find us desirable will never be enough. You're always going to need the next person to say, oh, no, I want you too. I want you too, over and over. And then we'll lash out at people who suggest we might be using our attractiveness to manipulate or use other people. No, this is the thing that's giving me value and worth. We'll be desperate to stay beautiful. And then we'll assume that those who don't meet cultural standards of beauty, they're either lazy or ought to be pitied. What about this controlling? If we're consumed by keeping every aspect of our life in our control and our terms, then any disruption is going to be met with our scorn or our anger or our frustration. And then we'll just assume that people who aren't as controlling of their circumstances, sorry, that aren't as purposeful and put together as we are, we'll assume they're either dumb or they're lazy or they're bad. Because control equals capability equals value. And if you meet people who are carefree or unorganized, you'll assume they're either lazy or inept and they're a burden of some sort. Do you see the destructiveness of this pattern? If we lean and then we build and eventually we become enslaved. And now notice, um, the things I mentioned aren't bad things in and of themselves. Parenting is a good thing. Working hard and studying to be successful are good things. Um, Wanting to be attractive, that's not a bad thing. Um, wanting to have a life in which it is ordered, those aren't bad things in and of themselves, but do you see how even those good things, how missing the mark becomes lawlessness? All sin begins and ends in idolatry, which is why all sin deserves an equal judgment. I mean, there are some sins that have a greater ripple effect in a practical sense. If someone goes nuts and shoots 20 people like happened in Thailand, I believe, yesterday, that is a a ripple effect that's significant, right? But when we stand before God and give an account of our life, all of our sins come back to idolatry. They all start in idolatry. They all end in idolatry. We worship and serve something other than Jesus. We worship and serve something in the creation rather than the creator, And that thing will never save us. And it will always take our eyes off of Jesus. But the good news is, there's a solution. God's not stumped by our capacity to undermine ourselves. God didn't forsake Adam and Eve. In fact, the first thing he does is help them to cover their shame. And I would argue that just like God covered up the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve, Jesus covers up our shame, our spiritual nakedness, and he does this by offering himself as a means of triumphing over the power and the destructiveness of sin. I like this quote from Bible Study Tools, just explaining the importance of this. The objective basis and means of salvation is God's sovereign and gracious choice to be God with us in the person of Jesus Christ, who's described as both author and mediator of salvation. 
But the movement of Jesus' life goes through the cross and resurrection. It's therefore Christ crucified that is of central importance for salvation. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that was handed to death for our trespasses. Two different words by the, right there, by the way. Sins, trespasses. This is covering that, that span of sin. What Jesus did in our name, he also did in our place, giving his life as a ransom for many. And if Christ demonstrated his love by dying when we were still sinners, how much more should we now be saved by his life? So critical is the resurrection to the future hope of salvation that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But he has been raised, so your faith is powerful and you are no longer in your sins. When the Old Testament talks about God delivering his people, the word that's used has to do with a rescuer or a deliverer coming to set people free. The New Testament uses a word soteria, which is where we get this fancy word soteriology that has to do with salvation issues. It means the same thing. It just means Jesus came to save and to rescue. God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn to the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the concept of salvation. And because of Christ, uh, three things happen in relation to sin. First, when we surrender our lives to Christ, in what we call salvation. So I, I, I don't think we need to make this too complex. It simply means that we look at the person and work of Jesus and we say, okay, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. It's God in the flesh, incarnate. He lived, he died, he rose again. That atones for my sin. All right, uh, I believe that and I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. And it's that purposeful surrendering of our lives to following Jesus and what we call the Lordship of Christ. He's now King. He's now Lord. He gets to tell me what life looks like in the kingdom of God, right? I, I surrender all the other idols. He's the one. When that happens, we are immediately saved from the eternal penalty of sin. So the debt that we build up in our life from the lawlessness that we do is covered because the lawgiver has taken the penalty of the lawbreaker and the person of Jesus. The Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death. It's just that Jesus paid that debt for us. So in the most important sense of the word, our history is not our destiny. Jesus steps in, offers us life where there was death. I, I want to take a very brief aside about why a cross I hear a lot of conversation culturally. Is this cosmic child abuse? Why the blood? Why the necessity for this? This could be a much longer discussion, but I just want to note two things that Jesus' Jewish audience would have understood very clearly was happening with Jesus on the cross. Number one, this goes back to God's covenant with Abraham. And you'll see on the right-hand side of the screen, the way they did covenants back then, and this was not unique to the Jewish people. But they did covenants, and they would take animals, and they would cut them in half, and they would spread them apart, and you would walk between them. And the deal was, if I break the covenant, may it be done to me what was done to these animals. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, God does not make Abraham walk through. 
Um, Genesis records God represented as kind of a light or a lamp, passes through basically saying, if either one of us breaks this covenant, may it be done to me what was done to these animals. God did not break the covenant. Abraham and his descendants do. And on the cross, you see God fulfilling the covenant. I will pay the price broken and spilled out for you. So that was part of it. The second part was just the Passover lamb going back to Egypt. That's what you see on the left with the last plague, the killing of a lamb, the blood on the doorpost where death would pass over. Throughout Jewish history, as Passover was celebrated, they always went back to the lamb who caused death to pass over. And Jesus, in his final meal with his disciples, makes clear he is the Passover lamb. It is the shedding of his blood that will cause death to pass over. So this might seem unusual to us today, but to Jesus' Jewish audience, this was a clear message. I am the one who can save. I do think there's more to it than that, though. And I would just make this point that forgiveness always involves suffering on the part of one who's forgiving. Now, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the suffering. So we experience this in small ways all the time. If someone hurts us and we extend forgiveness to them, we basically say this. Um, I, I've taken on the pain of that hurt, but uh, I'm giving up the right to inflict pain in return. Uh, I've given up making them feel what I felt. So the more I am wronged by someone, the harder and the more significant it is to say, uh, I forgive you. I give up my right to make you feel what I felt. Uh, I give up my right to inflict on you what you inflicted on me. So if you could think through situations in your life where you've offered forgiveness, you know that forgiveness is costly. There's just something in us that wants to get back, but forgiveness says, I will not. I will not make you suffer what I suffered. The greater the sin, the greater the cost. Crucifixion at that time was probably the greatest suffering that people could imagine. Tim Keller says, God did not then inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross he absorbed the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself. This is a God who becomes human and offers his own lifeblood in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without destroying us. And that's good news indeed. So, we're saved immediately from the eternal penalty of sin. Second, we're saved from the present power of sin. All I mean by this is, without Christ, we are dead in our sins. The Bible uses the words, we're chained or we are enslaved. We can't not sin. What happens when we surrender our life to Christ is that God moves in. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week and gives us a power we did not have. Now we are no longer enslaved to the chains of sin. The things which defined and formed us, they no longer have the power to define and to form us. And then finally, one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. So when we talk about heaven, when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, the life to come, when we move into the eternal kingdom instead of just the temporary kingdom that we're in now as followers of Jesus, now what we're seeing here is the restoration of shalom. Now we're seeing good 
once again being the word that describes everything. The new heaven and the new earth won't be broken and neither will we. And it's a solution that frees us from this life of brokenness, which can be so frustrating. And it gives us an eternity of joy. I close with a quote from a book called King's Cross. The gospel takes evil and loss with utmost seriousness because it says we cannot save ourselves. Nothing short of the death of the very Son of God can save us. But the happy ending of the historical resurrection is so enormous that it swallows up even the sorrow of the cross. It's so great that those who believe it can henceforth fully face the depth of the sorrow and brokenness of life. If we believe the gospel, then our hearts slowly heal even as we face the darkest times because we know that because of Jesus, even our griefs, even the discatastrophes we know will be taken up into the miraculous grace of God's purposes. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.